welcome to another episode of the Vestibule Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Vest, founder and publisher of the Substack newsletter, The Vestibule. This episode is titled Staying Alive and bears the subtitle, Survivors of the Flux Gives Doctor Who Fans Reasons to Worry and to Rejoice. This review was first published on January 14th, 2022, and was written by myself, Jason P. Vest. The episode's pedigree is as follows. Survivors of the Flux, Chapter 5 of Series 13 Season Long, 6 Episode, Serialized Story Subtitled Flux, was written by Chris Chibnall and directed by Azir Salim. It stars Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor, Mandip Gill as Yasmin Yaz Khan, and John Bishop as Dan Lewis. Survivors of the Flux guest stars Nadia Albina as Diane Curtis, Jacob Anderson as Instin V. Vinder, Robert Bathurst as General Farquhar, Cammie Darwish as Kumar, Craig Ells as Carvanista, Barbara Flynn as Osok, also known as Tecteun, Thaddea Graham as Bell, Steve Oram as Joseph Williamson, Johnny Mathers as Passenger, Kevin McNally as Eustatius Jericho, Craig Parkinson as Prentice, also known as The Grand Serpent, Gemma Redgrave as Kate Lethbridge-Stewart, Roshenda Sandal as Azure, and Sam Spruill as Swarm. The episode is 50 minutes long and was first broadcast on both BBC One and BBC America on November 28th, 2021. And now, on with the show. Something. Blinking. Blinking. Tough crowd. What are you then? Prison guards? We are conversion. Conversion to what? We are transport. You've encased me in a weeping angel form to transport me somewhere. Why? It amused us. You fear us, Doctor. You always have. And now your form is ours. We have dominion over you. You're a very smug statue. What have you done with my friends? Your friends are marooned where we left them. They are lost. My friends are never lost. Section 1. Good enough? After the thrilling manner by which Chapter 4 of Doctor Who Flux, titled Village of the Angels, propelled New Who's Series 13 forward, perhaps its follow-up episode, titled Survivors of the Flux, could only disappoint audiences despite writer and showrunner Chris Chibnall's best efforts. Given how engaging this installment is, Survivors of the Flux, if taken on its own terms, is a fine enough entry in Flux's ongoing narrative. 
That last statement may sound like damning chapter 5 with faint praise, yet such a response seems inevitable given the high bar set by chapter 4, particularly its sensational climax, which sees the 13th Doctor, played by Jodie Whittaker, transform into a weeping angel. Survivors of the flux probably never could scale, much less surmount, this dramatic summit, so judging Flux's fifth chapter by its predecessor's glories may be fundamentally unfair. Chibnall, to his credit, doesn't attempt similar gut-punching moments in Survivors of the Flux, because the showrunner knows he cannot surpass Chapter 4's achievements, and wisely chooses not to try. The trouble, if trouble there be, comes in the unavoidable crashing to ground level that reaching this peak mandates. Chibnall doesn't cushion Chapter 5's fall either by assigning it the plainest title of the serial's six episodes. Survivors would be a more evocative title, while Wayfarers would better encompass the globetrotting nature of an entry that, as usual, features terrific performances from everyone involved, especially principal cast members Whitaker, Mandip Gill as Yasmin Yaz Khan, and John Bishop as Dan Lewis, alongside startling revelations about the Doctor's hidden history as both the Timeless Child and as a member of the mysterious temporal black ops agency called Division. Chibnall, to boot, includes some marvelous jokes in a packed to the rafters episode that takes its audience around the world and into many different time periods, thereby breathlessly grafting the conventions of the breeziest adventure narratives, H. Ryder Haggard's 1885 novel King Solomon's Mines, director George Stevens's 1939 film adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's Gunga Din, and the Indiana Jones movies are clear reference points to the disaster movie tropes that Chibnall cherishes and that longtime viewers know have typified Doctor Who since 1963. These are primal forces of evil that we're dealing with. Some forces I don't even understand yet. I think I'm at risk. Events like the flux create ripples through time. It will have been foreseen somewhere by some smart people. You need to figure out that date and help the Earth. Pattern optimization in progress. We've been in this decades for three years now. Do you think we'll ever get back? Governor's the pirate fleet. Earth's shield is now breachable. How do you expect to protect this pitiful race? I do not know. You seem remarkably proficient at this, Miss Khan. There's no use being squeamish. We've got the future to save. Can you feel the time force growing? It's working. Just as we planned. Section 2. Smart Enough? With so much going for it, Survivors of the Flux is better than the fair-to-middling entry that some commentators have proclaimed, but Chibnall's need to track so many different characters through so many separate places and times offers us reason to worry that he won't be able to bring Flux to a gratifying conclusion. Why not? The answer involves Chibnall's decision to put enough material in play to fill a normal 10- or 13-episode season. Chapter 5's density makes me suspect that Chibnall, for all his talents, doesn't have sufficient narrative real estate to build out the complicated edifice that Flux has become. Due to COVID-19 filming restrictions, only six chapters were available to tell Series 13's story, meaning that Chibnall may have miscalculated Flux's overall trajectory by letting his enthusiasms run away with him, whether for crissing and crossing and combining as many genres as possible, for speculating philosophically about the contradictory nature of time itself, or for making the Doctor's life the center of not simply Gallifreyan society, but, indeed, the universe itself. 
Such efforts should be applauded because, for me, writerly ambition is always preferable to its opposite. Too many fictional stories, whether in print, on stage, or on screen of any size, remain wedded to false notions of realism, probability, and plausibility, so Chibnall's preference for pushing himself and his New Who scripts past the point of believability, sensible structure, and narrative propriety is, in the main, refreshing. Doing so, in a compensatory benefit, harmonizes with Doctor Who's long history of telling barmy stories that don't always add up, at least in terms of plot, but that offer admirable wit, insight, humor, and emotional depth. As showrunners Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat demonstrated in their gonzo approaches to the Doctor's journeys throughout space and time, no single correct way to tell a Who story exists. From this vantage point, Chibnall's decision to go for broken flux has already yielded better returns than playing it safe would have. Following this path, however, courts real danger, especially if Chibnall cannot control Series 13's runaway train momentum enough to construct a conclusion that, even if it needn't tie up every loose end, must knit enough of these hanging threads together so that viewers will find the tapestry satisfying to contemplate. The voyage, once concluded, must seem worth taking or Flux's audience will feel cheated. Some fans, of course, will be unhappy no matter what Chibnall does, but the British Broadcasting Corporation's or BBC's Flux advertisements promise one epic story over six thrilling chapters, so aiming for this goal is Chibnall's chief challenge now that Flux has entered its final stretch. As Survivors of the Flux makes clear, Chibnall's chances of success seem high enough, but aren't guaranteed. Please remain still while quantum realignment stabilizes. Do not remove your conversion plate. Follow me. She is waiting. Who is it? Section 3. Will People Like Thee? Chapter 5, to state the matter plainly, moves at such a blinding pace that this installment cannot help but fling mind-bending ideas at viewers in a rushed narrative that, like Chapter 1, titled The Halloween Apocalypse, risks becoming a plot engine that, rather than telling a rich story, mechanically slots all the necessary events, characters, and themes into their correct configurations to make way for next week's concluding chapter, titled, we now know, The Vanguishers. Chibnall doesn't skimp on cramming incident after incident, event after event, and revelation after revelation into Survivors of the Flux. He picks this episode up immediately after the remarkable final moments of Village of the Angels. The Thirteenth Doctor, now transformed into a weeping angel and recalled to division, finds herself standing in a field of thousands of angels before awakening inside a strange space station, wherein Ood hands her a device called a conversion plate to stabilize her existence between dimensions. 
The Doctor then meets a woman named Ossock, played by Barbara Flynn, whom she briefly encountered in Flux's third chapter, titled Once Upon Time, during the time storm that was that outing's central plot point. Ossock reveals that she is, in fact, the latest regeneration of Tecteun, the mother of Time Lord society who, eons ago and on an unnamed planet, discovered the timeless child abandoned near a portal that formed the entrance to a wormhole. Tecteun, soon realizing that this youngster could renew her physical form when near death, began studying this ability by provoking multiple regenerations in the child until she, Tecteun, uncovered how this process works. Tecteun then injected the appropriate genetic markers into herself and created the first Gallifreyans capable of regeneration. Ossok, indeed, confirms as true everything that Sasha Dewan's vengeful spymaster tells the Doctor about the Time Lord's origins in New Who's Series 12 finale, titled The Timeless Children. She also confesses that Division was originally established to protect Gallifrey from external threats, but grew in authority and influence until it became large enough to recruit operatives from all species, eras, and even dimensions. This development allowed Division to begin contravening official Time Lord policy by interfering in how history unfolds, a power that unsurprisingly went to the heads of Division's leaders, who claimed the right to engineer historical outcomes as they pleased, not merely by directing the course of entire world's development, but, as Ossock's words imply, by exterminating entire species that didn't meet Division's standards for enlightenment. The Doctor, in a moment of sickened recognition nicely played by Whitaker, realizes that her personal history, the memories of which Division erased, is indirectly responsible for these outcomes. Ossock, moreover, says that Division grew so weary of the Doctor's travels throughout space and time that its leaders came to consider her a virus into the experiment of the universe's unfolding. The Doctor's constant, albeit unknowing, interference with Division's plans caused these same leaders to decide that the entire experiment had failed. They designed the Flux to destroy what Ossock calls Universe One, our universe, the whole of known creation, from their space station located in the Void, i.e. the emptiness between dimensions. Asak and her Ood assistant are moving the station into a neighboring universe, dubbed Universe 2, which just happens to house the other end of the wormhole, under whose entrance Tecteun first discovered the timeless child. Universe 2, in other words, may be the Doctor's true home, but this notion barely registers before Asak lets loose one final truth. Division created the Flux to destroy Universe 1 because the Doctor's moral behavior, according to Ossok, contains the dangerous power to inspire, make people question, rise up. You give them hope that can be problematic. The Doctor is properly thunderstruck that Division created the Flux to stop her, thereby committing genocide on the largest possible scale. Chibnall, in these scenes, refuses to play it safe, painting his creative ambitions on the broadest possible canvas, so we should be thankful that Jodie Whittaker's and Barbara Flynn's good acting brings to life what might have been the staid sight of two characters lobbing information at one another. They transform Chibnall's long passages of challenging dialogue into a conversation that, crackling with wit, is equal parts interrogation and verbal punching match. Both performers plumb emotional nuances, including wonder, surprise, regret, and even disgust at the other's refusal to see the proper point of view that might otherwise descend into maudlin sloganeering. 
Director Azure Salim mixes beautifully composed close-ups of Whitaker's and Flynn's faces with long tracking shots and jump cuts that infuse this sequence with energy. Adept as Salim is at realizing this section of Chibnall's script, the storyline just summarized could have, and perhaps should have, filled Chapter 5's 50-minute running time. Yet it exists as one of not two, not three, not four, but five distinct narrative threads whose presence in a single episode rouses my suspicions that Flux's many parts may, in the end, overwhelm its whole. This is our pride and joy. Yes, it does look special. Its purpose is to detect non-terrestrial life forms. Turn it on, Jennings, and get that sample spore. Everyone keeps telling me it's not of this earth. Here we go. Yeah, as human as they come. Now you. I'd rather you didn't. Radiation. If it's not fully proven. Nonsense. The boffins have been working on this for ages. Section 4, Fair Dues. Survivors of the Flux, for those listeners still counting, also tracks Yaz, Dan, and Kevin McNally's delightful Professor Eustatius Jericho as they roam the face of the earth in the year 1904, searching for evidence of when the world will end, meaning when the final Flux event will destroy the planet. How they have sustained this adventure for three years, ever since being transported by the Weeping Angels to Metterton, England in 1901, to say nothing of how they can afford journeying via ocean liner from Mexico to Constantinople to Nepal to the Great Wall of China to Liverpool, England, on a quest given them by an adaptive hologram of the Doctor, is anyone's guess. The Nepal sequence features a fabulous guest turn by Kami Darwish as Kumar, a legendary seer whom Jericho wishes to consult to receive an important message about the date of Earth's final hour, but who, living high atop a mountain, teases the three wayfarers for not bringing him news and gossip of the wider world. What about some food? A rope? A pot? The latest Conan Doyle? Kumar asks, in fun and funny moments that Darwish winningly plays with mock indignation and joie de vivre. Kumar's message contains only three words. Fetch your dog. 
which connects this second plotline to Chapter 5's third narrative branch, namely the efforts of Lupari warrior Carvanista, played by Craig Ells, to prevent breaches in the planet-encompassing shield that his species' seven billion spacecraft formed around Earth in the Halloween apocalypse to protect it from the Flux's shockwave. Carvanista does so by recalling the stolen Lupari craft that Bell, played by Thaddea Graham, commandeers in Once Upon Time, which we last saw in Village of the Angels, when Bell landed on the planet Puzano searching for, you guessed it, survivors of the Flux, only to encounter villainous sibling Azure, played by Roshenda Sandal, telling the refugees who found their way there that she'll transport them to a new paradise away from the Flux's death and destruction. Azure instead traps these poor souls in what she calls a passenger form. A humanoid character, played by Johnny Mathers wearing a metal mask, first encountered in Chapter 3 that is, in fact, a living container whose endless interior space is perfect for incarcerating prisoners. Carvanista takes remote command of Bell's ship and returns it to Earth, only to have Bell excoriate him for stopping her quest to find her partner and the father of her unborn child, Instant V. Vender, played by Jacob Anderson, who finds himself trapped inside Passenger after he arrives at a giant monolith built on an asteroid in deep space, where Azure and her brother, Swarm, played by Sam Spruill, disintegrate the Puzanu refugees and harvest the resulting energy to power their trip across dimensions in hopes of reaching the same void space station that houses the Doctor and Asuk. And if this fourth subplot doesn't satisfy your thirst for more, more, more Doctor Who action, please know that Chris Chibnall's narrative cup runneth over into a fifth storyline that sees Craig Parkinson's Grand Serpent, the interstellar despot first seen in Once Upon Time, and the person responsible for Vendor's exile to Observation Outpost Rose, appear in England circa 1958 masquerading as a man named Prentice, who crosses paths with General Farquhar, played by Robert Bathurst, the man assigned by the United Nations to build the British branch of a global task force that will investigate and counter extraterrestrial threats to Earth. Yes, friends, Chibnall here takes survivors of the Flux right back to the founding of UNIT, the alien fighting organization first seen in the 1968 Second Doctor serial titled The Invasion. Named the United Nations Intelligence Task Force in that adventure, and throughout its appearances in Classic Who, UNIT came to prominence during John Pertwee's 1970-1974 run as the Third Doctor, remaining part of on-screen Who until 1975-1976's Season 13 after which it made one final appearance in the 1989 7th Doctor Adventure Battlefield, notably the opening serial of what proved to be Classic Who's final televised season. Russell T. Davis introduced UNIT, renamed the Unified Intelligence Task Force, to New Who during its first two-parter, Series 1's 2005 9th Doctor installments titled Aliens of London and World War III. Chibnall's inspired choice to show how Unit gets going in Survivors of the Flux sees the Grand Serpent in the guise of Prentice infiltrating the agency from the moment of its founding, which permits him to organize its structure over the next nine years. General Farquhar, while touring Unit's new Ministry of Defense headquarters one day in 1967, unwisely decides to scan Prentice with a device that detects extraterrestrial life signs, causing Prentice to murder Farquhar by summoning a long, spiked, snake-like creature that suffocates Farquhar from within. 
Farquhar's face ripples grotesquely to announce this critter's presence, which then exits his mouth and merges with Prentice's body in images that show just how good New Who's visual effects team is. So this is an adaptive hologram. Right now, we're in the TARDIS, having just left the planet time, which should not exist. Still bugging me. I've just pulled you out of your own time stream because I'm good at doing stuff like that. All right, Big Ed. Did you just call me Big Ed? Bet I bet you did. did. Well, still works, even if you didn't. I'm worried about what might happen next. These are primal forces of evil that we're dealing with. Some forces I don't even understand yet. I think I'm at risk which is why I need to record this and smuggle it into your pocket to say, if we lose each other, if we get separated, don't worry. This will activate two weeks after we've not had contact with each other. I won't know where or when you'll be, or if you're on your own or with Dan or whoever, but this is the task. Earth has been shielded from the flux, but it'll be vulnerable. It'll become a target. If the flux is destroying the universe, if planets and stars are being wiped out, there will be displaced creatures who need a home, somewhere to take over. But that would mean a time of battle for ownership of the Earth. You need to find out where and when that will be. And events like the flux create ripples through time. It will have been foreseen somewhere by some smart people. You need to figure out that date and help the Earth. That's all I have, I'm sorry it's not more. I'm probably worried for you if you're hearing this. I'm sure I miss you. Miss you too. I know you do. I hope you said I miss you too, else that bit's weird. <laughs> oh, hang on. Right there, I think you're calling me from the control room. Section 5. Fair Warnings. Chibnall gives longtime viewers two added treats in Chapter 5's unit scenes. First, while Farquhar leads Prentice through unit's freshly constructed HQ, we hear Corporal Alastair Lethbridge-Stewart shouting behind a closed office door. This character, played by the late Nicholas Courtney, is such a beloved member of Who's extended cast that hearing Courtney's voice cameo caused me to applaud involuntarily in celebration. Courtney so frequently played the Brigadier from 1968 to 1975, having been promoted in rank during the Third Doctor's era, that he became an unofficial companion to Doctors 2, 3, and 4. By momentarily returning the Brigadier to New Who, Chibnall offers longtime viewers a welcome bit of nostalgia. Chibnall doesn't stop here either. His second gift comes during Prentice's quest to become Unit's legislative minister, which succeeds in 2017, at which point Prentice invalidates Unit's charter and orders its operations to cease. This decision provokes the wrath of none other than the formidable Kate Lethbridge-Stewart, played by Gemma Redgrave, the Brigadier's daughter and Unit's 21st century chief. I whooped aloud to see Kate, who last appeared in Series 9's exceptional 2015 12th Doctor two-parter, titled The Zygon Invasion and The Zygon Inversion, on screen again. Gemma Redgrave certainly makes the most of her short time in Survivors of the Flux by working herself into proper high dudgeon when Kate refuses Prentice's command to wind down Unit's activities. Chapter 5 includes so many terrific moments like these that Survivors of the Flux is, in many ways, a smashing success. And nowhere more so than my favorite scene, which confirms how deeply Yaz loves the 13th Doctor. 
while aboard the ocean liner taking herself, Dan, and Jericho to their 1904 rendezvous with Kumar, Yaz watches, for the umpteenth time we sense, the adaptive hologram that the Doctor recorded before being captured by the Weeping Angels. Mandip Gill is extraordinary here. Just watch her eyes react to every syllable of the Doctor's instructions about how they will find one another again. The small smile Yaz manages when calling the Doctor, Baguette just before the doctor calls her this same nickname, the way Yaz's eyes missed when the doctor says, I'm sure I'll miss you. And the plaintive voice in which Gil delivers Yaz's, Missed. Builds upon the subtle clues Gil has laced throughout Flux's first four chapters to demonstrate that Yaz no longer thinks of the doctor as just a fun friend with whom she explores the universe. The love evident here reaffirms my stated preference that, no matter how good Flux may be, Chibnall should have spent Series 13 exploring Yaz and the Doctor's friendship during their solo adventures, journeys that must now become the province of fan fiction, officially authorized novels, and Big Finish audio dramas. Are these judgments unreasonable? Perhaps, but saying that Survivors of the Flux is all over the place, or all over the map, is literal truth given its compounding plots, subplots, themes, subthemes, and characters. Chibnall structures this outing around interwoven vignettes that permit Chapter 5 to skate close to, and occasionally cross over, the borders of picaresque fiction. So, despite admiring Chibnall's ambition in writing Flux's penultimate chapter this way, his faith in our ability to track its disparate elements across so many places, eras, and sequences is, indeed, touching. The sheer intricacy of Survivors of the Flux renews my fears that Series 13 will not finish as obligingly as necessary. Chibnall still has 2022's three special episodes ahead of him, including the feature-length centenary special that will conclude the 13th Doctor's era, so he needn't wind up every Flux storyline in The Vanguishers, but the possibility that Chapter 6 will collapse into itself and implode Chibnall's good work looms larger than I would prefer. Doctor Who's cast and crew have been exceptional in making Flux tremendously enjoyable to watch. If nothing else, Survivors of the Flux demonstrates that their attention to craft has never been higher. Let us hope, then, that Chibnall repays his collaborators with a finale that honors their efforts. Yes, let us hope. This Survivors of the Flux review includes an endnote section, but, for brevity's sake, I won't repeat its single note here. Please read Staying Alive on the digital device of your choice to see this note and to access the hyperlinks embedded in it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vestibule Podcast. Please visit the newsletter's website at vestibule.substack.com to read this entry, to explore the images and linked resources available there, and to access all other posts. Until next time, this is Jason Vest wishing you fun and felicitations.